0: Joining us here at Republic Broadcasting Network. I'm Bruce G. McCarthy, your host for the next one hour, and you are listening to Data Mine. In our last Data Mine broadcast entitled Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 7, we continued our review of the so-called honest money reform proposals advanced by populists and other critics of the Federal Reserve System, using the Truth in Money book by Mr. Thorne and Warner as sort of a template. That message specifically focused on the widespread misunderstanding of the Constitution, where the power to coin money, expressed at Article 1, Section 8, and Paragraph 5, is mysteriously converted into the power to create fictitious money out of nothing, in the same way as the Federal Reserve. Endless repetitions of this myth, however, cannot create a power that was never granted to Congress. The reason no such power is found in the Constitution for those who are at least willing to look for it, is because this power was intentionally and specifically withheld by our founding fathers in a vote of 9 to 2 at the Constitutional Convention of 1787. Now, the fact that we don't see eye to eye on this subject is somewhat understandable. First, when we want something bad enough, it's easy to overlook information that does not fit our preconceived notions. Second, if the judiciary seems to support our faulty reasoning, it's easy to overlook the flawed logic of politically appointed judges hostile to the Constitution. A black robe does not guarantee righteous behavior or godly wisdom in the sin-laden world of political and judicial corruption. Third, it's easy to draw conclusions from judicial rulings that are simply not there. And fourth, surrounding ourselves with people who agree with us adds to our level of confidence in what might not be so. You know, spokesmen of various schools of thought are oftentimes found swimming in the same pool, attending and speaking at the same conferences, quoting and praising one another. Frequent repetition of an absurdity is even able to convert it into a principle of unquestionable truth if those repetitions sound convincing to an untrained ear. Our nation's economic leadership, for example, has done a marvelous job of authoritatively dishing up nonsense for wholesale consumption. In today's message, we'll close out our examination of the principles of monetary science outlined by Mr. Thorne and Mr. Warner. Before doing so, however... We'll finish with our discourse on the disinformation being propagated about the Constitution. We'll grab an article from American Free Press and then take a look at the legislative proposal of the American Monetary Institute sponsored by Congressman Dennis Kucinich, Democrat of Ohio, back in 2010. As stated in earlier broadcasts, our basic choice of economic reform is quite simple. Either we use something as money, or we don't. The United States Constitution mandates an economic system that requires something, such as gold and silver, be used as money, while spokesmen for the Republican, Democrat, and populist platforms insist that America continue its one-half century of economic suicide by using absolutely nothing as money. Every evil we face is liberally funded with intangible credit, the synthetic lifeblood of all modern tyranny. Our message today, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 8. Here's our music, this is our first break, and I'm Bruce G. McCarthy. You are listening to Datum Line. Welcome back to this segment of Datum Line. Our message today, Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit. Part 8, and you know, as I mentioned on the other side of this break, every evil we face is funded with intangible credit. That's what I call the synthetic lifeblood of all modern tyranny. And no matter what subject that you may be interested in, it may be the corporate takeover of America, Europe, the globe, the many mergers, huge monopolies, the Wall Street financial dictators, the bank bailouts, economic assaults on what's left of our blue-collar workforce, the record foreclosures and bank debt, you know, private business and government at all levels. Maybe it's the United Nations Agenda 21, land use regulation, or perhaps the breakdown of national borders, the denationalization of entire countries, illegal immigration policies to accomplish multicultural amalgamation. Uh, with the consent, uh, or I should say the consequent, uh, social-political unrest and chaos. Or maybe it's the social-political reorientation of our children by way of the hidden socialist agenda directed by UNESCO, the NEA, and the Department of Education. Or maybe it's the welfare colossus, the breakdown of the Christian work ethic and the demoralization of society, you know, by way of government subsidies, grants, and transfer programs. Maybe it's the rising police state and surveillance, or maybe it's the endless wars on behalf of the Israeli lobby and the corporate empires with increasing atrocities committed by a degenerating American military. Maybe it's the rush to extract our natural resources like natural gas, you know, the fracking. Or how about the extraction or confiscation, you might say, of our clean water by uh, the privatization of our water supplies. Huge corporations doing that. Whatever it is, there's a common thread that runs through all of this. It's the fact that your adversary seems to have very deep pockets because it's funded with intangible credit, and there's no limit as to how much credit can be created, or almost no limit. You know, the world at large, whether it be Central and South America, Europe, the U.K., elsewhere, they all suffer from the same economic afflictions as we Americans. We're all using nothing as money, in violation of the biblical principle of just weights and measures. So you see, these datum line messages have a global application. Now, there was a popular quotation that's been fielded by Federal Reserve critics for years, and it's one to which I heartily subscribe. And it's from our 20th president, James A. Garfield of Ohio. You know, he only served for six months in office. His six-month term of office ended on September 19th, 1881, by an assassin's bullet that was fired 79 days earlier on July 2nd of 1881. He said that whoever controls the volume of money in a country is absolute master of all industry and commerce. I think he actually said, whoever controls a volume of money or credit. Nevertheless, it was we the people who were to have been that master. Yet without hesitation, populists at American Free Press and many others of their persuasion insist that this power was actually given to Congress by our forefathers and that it must be restored to them by nationalizing the Federal Reserve System if we are to avert an economic collapse. So important is this myth in propping up a major fallacy that we'll explore it a bit more before concluding principles number 15 through 18 of monetary science. Now, the Constitution doesn't say very much about money or credit, but what it does say is as clear as day, and it's as clear as the framers were precise in choosing the words and phrases to express their intentions. Article 1, Section 8, Paragraph 5, confers upon Congress the power to coin money. That means to stamp pieces of metal into coin form. It doesn't grant any authority to print paper money, as some people call it, or money out of nothing. They are also given by that same article the power to regulate the value thereof, that being of the coined money, that meaning being the weight and the purity of those coins. So they all came out the same, okay, per dollar denomination. And they could do that of foreign coin, because there was a time in America when foreign coins circulated as a lawful tender. But those coins could be modified to comport with ours. Now, that did not give Congress the power to uh, tamper with foreign bills of credit or notes. Those would have been made out of paper, and we weren't using that and congress has also given the power article 1 section 8 paragraph 5 to fix a standard of weights and measures not to alter or amend amend it at a later date you know what they meant by the word ounce pound ton pint cord gallon cubic yard inch foot mile mill cent or dollar all of which are units of measure article 1 section 8 paragraph 2 grants to congress the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States. Those are the words. Not the power to borrow intangible credit on the credit of the United States. Article 1, Section 8, Paragraph 1, grants to Congress the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, and to pay debts, all of which were reckoned in money. Article 1, Section 9, Paragraph 7, makes two more references to money. First, that no money shall be drawn from the Treasury but in consequence of appropriations made by law. And second, a regular statement and account of the receipts and expenditures of all public money shall be published from time to time. Now, taken in context with Article 1, Section 10, Paragraph 1, which says that no state shall make, or I should say no state shall coin money, emit bills of credit, or make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts, can only mean that the money to be coined by Congress must be gold and silver. That the only money to be borrowed by Congress is gold and silver. That the only money to be regulated, in terms of its weight and purity, by Congress is gold and silver. That the only money drawn from the Treasury was to be gold and silver. And that the only statement of money received or spent would be reckoned in gold and silver. Now, from a historical point of view, money for hundreds, if not thousands of years, all the way back in the biblical antiquity, was gold and silver. And most of that time, it was in coin form. All the way back to Abraham, at least to Abraham. And we're talking 2000 B.C. Now, what was the unit of measure used for weighing or measuring our gold and silver coins here in the United States? It was a unit of measure called dollar, with smaller measurements called cents and even smaller ones called mills, but we didn't have any coins that were weighed in mills. Any constitutional reference to the word dollar? Certainly. Article 1, Section 9, Paragraph 1, speaks of a tax or a duty on dollars the migration or importation of certain persons. Those would be slaves, and that was until the year 1808. Quote, not to exceed $10 for each person. And the Seventh Amendment speaks of the right to a trial by jury and suits at common law with a value in controversy shall exceed $20. Those aren't very big numbers, but a dollar weight of silver or a dollar weight of gold used to command a great deal. In the marketplace. That was before we started watering it down with credit instruments. Now, to put all of this in perspective, the Coinage Act of April 2nd, 1792, states at Section 11, in pertinent part, and this is an important Coinage Act because this is the one that actually implements the United States Constitution with respect to our economic policies at governmental levels. It says, quote, that the proportional value of gold to silver in all coins, which shall by law be current as money within the United States, shall be as 15 to 1. Section 16 says in pertinent part, quote, that all the gold and silver coins, which shall have been struck at and issued from the said mint that was in Philadelphia, shall be a lawful Tender in all payments whatsoever, not just a legal tender. Remember, there's a difference between legal and lawful. Legal is the form of law. Lawful is the substance of law. And in law, substance governs over form. Section 20 says, in pertinent part, quote, that the money of account of the United States shall be expressed in dollars. I'm going to stop right there. It does not say that dollars are the money. That's an error. It says that the money of account of the United States shall be expressed in dollars or units, dimes or tenths, cents or hundreds, mills or thousands. And it goes on to say that all accounts in public offices and all proceedings in the courts of the United States shall be kept and had in conformity to this regulation. That's still a law, by the way. Section 9 of that same coinage act isolates the definition of the word dollar. Saying, quote, dollars or units, each to be of the value of a Spanish mill dollar as the same is now current. Well, what was now? It was 1792. And we had Spanish mill dollars, so called coins, that were circulating in the United States. That was part of our money back in those days. And it goes on to say, and to contain 371.25 grains of pure silver or 416 grains of standard silver. Now back in those days standard silver was 11 twelfths pure but later on it was revised to nine tenths or .900 fine or nine tenths pure or simply 412.5 grains the overall weight. Nevertheless the pure silver content between both of those or among those we're both the same. Three hundred and seventy one point two five grains. And those was the same amount of silver as was contained in the Spanish mill dollar, the peso de eight real, the piece of eight. Here's our music. This is our next break. And you are listening to Batamine. Welcome back to this segment of Data Line. On the other side of our break, we were talking about the language of the Constitution, the use of the word money, the use of the word coin, the use of the word tender and payment and such, and the fact that our founding fathers knew what they were talking about, even if we in our generation do not. You know, according to R.S. Yeoman's 1962 guidebook of United States coins, page 123, he says, quote, the Spanish dollar, or piece of aid, was widely used and familiar to everyone in the English-American colonies. It was only natural, therefore, that the word dollar was adopted officially as the standard monetary unit of the United States on July 6, 1785. Now, we're going to take notice, first off, that this is the monetary unit. So I ask the question, can a unit of the money become the money for which it is the mere unit? No. But notice also that this was on July 6, 1785, prior to ratification of the Constitution. Already, we were using the word dollar as our official unit of money sort of like the yard and the inch, the mile. Those are all intangible. You can't see, smell, hear, taste, nor touch them. And you can't see, hear, smell, taste, or touch a dollar. This was all prior to the Constitution, and it was seven years prior to the Coinage Act of April 2nd, 1792, which was first written to carry out the constitutional mandate concerning our system of lawful money. You see, our founding fathers knew what they meant by the word dollar and the word money. It is we who have been separated from those meanings by a group of language manipulators with an evil agenda. Now, as to the matter of printing and issuing bills of credit, you know, things like United States notes, gold and silver certificates, and so forth, that power was stricken out of the Constitution. Okay, And I'm going to take a couple references. I'm going to go to the... Uh, History of Coinage and Currency in the United States in the Perennial Contest for Sound Money. This was written by A. Barton Hepburn. He was ex-comptroller of the currency, ex-superintendent of banking for the Department of the State of New York, and vice president of Chase National Bank. Now, this is a 600-and-some-odd-page book. This is no small book. And this man is no dummy when it comes to the subject of money banking and credit. This was written in 1903. And I'm going to turn to page 60 and 61 of his book. Quote, Fresh from their experiences with continental paper currency, so disastrous to all, it would appear reasonable to assume, page 61 now, that the intention of the framers of the Constitution was to prohibit all issues of legal tender paper by Congress. George Bancroft, keep that name in mind, George Bancroft contends in antagonism to the Supreme Court. That was when they came out with the Juliet versus Creeman decision in 1884. And George Bancroft was 84 years old at that time. He was born in 1800. He contended in antagonism to that Supreme Court that the record of the proceedings of the convention leaves no doubt of such intention. Let's go on. Quote, Upon the question whether the power to emit bills of credit, as stated in the draft of the Constitution then under consideration, should be given the United States, Governor Morris, in opposition, remarked that, if the United States have credit, such bills will be unnecessary. If they have not, will be unjust and useless. He was vigorously supported by other delegates. Ellsworth said it was a favorable moment to shut and bar the door against paper money. Wilson said that the striking out of the provisions would remove the possibility of paper money. Langdon preferred rejecting the whole plan, that's the whole Constitution, if you will, rather than retain the three words and emit bills. Madison, who hesitated to strike out the words, finally assented after having, as he said, satisfied himself that it would not disable the government from using its credit, in other words, it could borrow money on credit, but would cut off the pretext for a paper currency, and particularly for making bills a tender, either for public or private debts. Okay, now that's footnoted. Where? Well, it goes to Bancroft, A Plea for the Constitution. And in that plea for the Constitution, this historian, George Bancroft, a well-regarded historian, was quoting Eliot's debates of the Constitutional Convention. His book, A Plea for the Constitution, written in 1886. Now the words of A. Barton Hepburn. Quote, The words were stricken out by a vote of 4 to 1. Actually, it was 9 to 2. And unquestionably, the convention intended to withhold from the federal government the power to create paper money with legal tender attributes. End quote. Period. End of story. Right? Now, I see we've got a break coming up here. And on the other side of the break, I'm going to go to a plea for the Constitution written by George Bancroft. Mine is a 1982 rather than an 1886 edition. Mine's a reprint. But George Bancroft, according to the man who wrote the foreword, and that was uh, F. Tupper Saucy, now deceased, quote, knew the intent of the framers, expounders, and executors of the United States Constitution, better perhaps than any of his contemporaries, Born in 1800, he had personally talked with James Madison, John Adams, and Lafayette, had known Andrew Jackson and Polk and every president since Monroe. He was well qualified to discuss our Constitution as it applied to foreign nations. He was Secretary of the Navy, founder of the Naval Academy at Annapolis, uh, Maryland, minister to Germany. He even knew Lord Byron and Baron Rothschild. We'll get back to him on the other side of this break. Welcome back to this segment of Data Line: Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part Eight. We're now into the book, A Plea for the Constitution, originally written in 1886 by the historian George Bancroft. He says on page 38 here, quote: "The refusal of the Convention, that being the Constitutional Convention, 1787, to confer on the legislature of the United States the power to emit bills of credit." or irredeemable paper money in any form, is so complete that, according to all rules by which public documents are interpreted, it should not be treated as questionable. But as the truth in this case is of infinite importance and has been questioned by those in authority, the wrong done to the Constitution may justify a simple narrative of the facts which ample and indisputable records establish and which no power can alter. Hope you're listening, American Free Press, page 39. By a clause in the Ninth Article of Confederation of the United States of America, and only by that clause, the Confederated States had authority, quote, to emit bills on the credit of the United States, end quote. The Eighth Clause of the Seventh Article in the First Draft of the Constitution was as follows. Quote, the legislature of the United States shall have the power to borrow money and emit bills on the credit of the United States. Okay, this is taken from the journals of the convention in Eliot's debates, volume one at page 226. Okay, the journal of the convention for August 16th makes this record. It was moved and seconded to strike out the words and emit bills. And the motion to strike out these words passed in the affirmative. Yeas, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, nine. Nays, New Jersey, Maryland, two. This taken from the Journal of the Convention, Elliot's Debates, volume one, page 245. So the convention, by a vote of more than four to one, says Bancroft, refused to grant to the legislature of the United States the power to emit bills on the credit of the United States. For the interpretation of this record, I'm on page 40 now, Madison, the best possible witness, has left this note, quote, striking out the words, Cut off the pretext for a paper currency, and particularly for making the bills a tender, either for public or private debts. This taken from Madison's notes, Gilpin, page 1346, Elliot's Debates, volume 5, page 435. Madison was the chief author, says Bancroft, of the new Constitution. Its opponent, Luther Martin. The attorney general of Maryland, a delegate to the federal convention and present at the debate, read to the Maryland House of Delegates a paper in which he gave his account of the purpose of the convention. His evidence agrees exactly with that of Madison, and for nearly a hundred years, his fidelity as a witness was as little questioned as that of Madison. Here are two witnesses, page 41 now. Madison, who approved the prohibition, And Martin, who condemned it, the court, what court? This is the Juliet versus Greenman court, 1884, the Supreme Court. The court pushes the testimony of Madison aside as if he had, quote, not explained himself, end quote. Bancroft was taking the words of the Supreme Court because they didn't think that Madison had really understood or explained himself very well. Anyway, the court pushes the testimony of Madison aside as if he had, quote, not explained himself, end quote, sufficiently, though on the point in question his words are as clear as sunlight. The address of Martin the court rejects as a Philippic, being a caustic remark, though it contains not a word of invective against any individual and does contain the clearly expressed wishes of its author, that being Martin, quote, Not to wound the feelings of any person. Okay? Now, these are also footnoted. Let's continue. The question before the convention was, shall power be granted to the legislature of the United States, quote, to emit bills of credit? The first witness is Governor Morris, a man free from illusions, a delegate from the state which contained Philadelphia, then the most opulent city in the 13 states, and as by his interests he was nearly connected with the city and state of New York. He thoroughly represented the interests of commerce. He moved to strike out the grant of power to emit bills on the credit of the United States, saying, If the United States have credit, such bills will be unnecessary. If they have not, will be unjust and useless. The seconder of Gouverneur Morris was Pierce Butler, a delegate from South Carolina, then the richest commercial state in the South. He remarked in the course of debate that, quote, paper is a legal tender in no country in Europe, end quote. And he was urgent to withhold from the government of the United States the power to make it so. That's from Eliot's debate's, Volume 5, page 434 to 435. Madison. No, I won't bother there. We've been, we're not going to run. We're going to run out of time. Let me go to page 43. The words of Oliver Ellsworth, our third chief justice, were, quote, This is a favorable moment to shut and bar the door against paper money. The mischiefs of the various experiments which have been made, and those were by the states, by the way, are now fresh in the public mind and have excited the disgust of all the respectable part of America, end quote. Uh, I'm not going to have time in today's broadcast, but in another broadcast, I'm going to mention uh, some of these authors like uh, Dr. Charles Norburn and others who make glowing remarks about the bills of credit that were issued by the state of Massachusetts in 1690-1692. And 1690, that's nonsense. Uh, and that's why these people in the Constitutional Convention were striking this power from even the federal government to do it. And they were going to prohibit the states from doing it as well. Why? Because the mischiefs of the various experiments, plural, which have been made, plural, are now fresh, are, plural, in the public mind and have excited the disgust of all the respectable part of America. James Wilson, in concurrence with Ellsworth, said, It will have a most salutary influence on the credit of the United States to remove the possibility of paper money. This expedient can never succeed whilst its mischiefs are remembered. And as long as it can be resorted to, it will be a bar to other resources. George Reed spoke for Delaware. Quote, the words, if not struck out, I'm quoting him now, would be as alarming as the mark of the beast in Revelation. End quote. John Langdon of New Hampshire, conforming to the wise instructions of the towns of his state, said, quote, I had rather reject the whole plan, he would reject the Constitution itself, than retain the three words and emit bills. I'm on page 44 at the bottom now. By refusing to the United States the power of issuing bills of credit, the victory over paper money was but half complete. The same James Wilson, who 12 days before with Oliver Ellsworth had taken a chief part in refusing to the United States the power to emit paper money, and the same Roger Sherman, who in 1752 had put forth all his energy to break up paper money in Connecticut, jointly took the lead. The first draft of the Constitution had forbidden the states to emit bills of credit without the consent of the legislature of the United States. On the 28th of August, they jointly offered this notion, quote, No state shall coin money, nor emit bills of credit, nor make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts, end quote making the prohibition absolute. In other words, now it wasn't even going to be allowed by the consent of the legislature of the United States. It was going to be prohibited entirely. Roger Sherman, animated by zeal for the welfare of the coming republic of countless millions, exclaims in the debate, quote, this is the favorable crisis for crushing paper money, end quote. His word was the will of the convention and the states by a majority of eight and a half against one and a half i hope that's sufficient to convince the people out there that our founding fathers had no intention of issuing even united states notes but. Let's see how the populist and independent American Free Press has consistently interpreted Article 1, Section 8, Paragraph 5, since it was the former Spotlight newspaper, the newspaper you could trust. I'm turning now to American Free Press, August twentieth, 2012, issue number 34, page 8, article entitled, Ron Paul Convenes Hearing to Discuss Supplanting Fed. I'll quote three or more sentences here. Paul, before the hearing, said, that the Fed can effectively create money out of thin air with impunity, while creators of gold and silver currencies face jail time. The only way to stabilize the economy, he says, is to return to monetary freedom by legalizing constitutional money. That seems amazing. You have to pass a law to make the Constitution legal, right? Now, what he want to do? He wants to legalize constitutional money. Here's how AFP answers that a couple paragraphs afterwards. This outlook, says AFP, is based on the libertarian views of the Austrian School of Economics. No, it isn't. It's based upon the Constitution. Now, I realize that Ron Paul is of the Austrian School of Economics. But the outlook is not based on the libertarian views of the Austrian School of Economics. It's based on the Constitution. He says, which sees no governmental role in creating money. That's what AFP says. The Austrian school sees no governmental role in creating money. Well, I agree with that. But here's how AFP goes on. That, however, is at odds with the Constitution. It is. Which expressly authorizes Congress to do just that under Article 1. Boy, I, 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 I don't get it. They want to say the views expressed at the hearing also run against the grain of H.R. 2990. House Resolution twenty nine ninety, the existing legislation to nationalize the Fed under the Treasury Department and issue interest-free U.S. currency not backed by gold to replace private interest-bearing Federal Reserve notes. Well, you know, if you're if you're a communist and you want to be a communist, that's fine, but don't say that the Constitution is what authorizes the establishment of, or the strict compliance with, the fifth plank of the Communist Manifesto. But let's turn to that bill. I believe it's H.R. 2990. I have a copy of it here, but they don't even have a number written in it. This is an early copy. And on the first page, it says a bill. This is the preamble. I'll only read a few words of it. To create a full employment economy as a matter of national economic defense. And it goes on to say, to restore the authority of Congress to create and regulate money. Where do you think they got that idea? Well, they invented it out of Article One, Section 8, and Paragraph 5. I'll turn to page 6, which is now at Section 2 of this bill, Paragraph 17, where they speak of the authority to create money is a sovereign power. We'll get to that word sovereign in another broadcast. Vested in the Congress under Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution. Is it? No, it's not. Paragraph 18. The enactment of the Federal Reserve Act in 1913 by Congress effectively delegated the sovereign power to create money to the Federal Reserve System and private financial industry. Let's turn to page 8, paragraph 22. Abolishing private money creation can be achieved with minimal disruption to current banking operations. And it goes on to paragraph 24, where they say, quote, Reclaiming the power of the federal government to create money and to spend or lend money into circulation as needed. Page 9, this is now Section 2, Paragraph 26, where they speak of, quote, The power to create and regulate money has been delegated to private individuals who are unaccountable to the people of the United States in any way, even through their representatives in Congress. I'm going to turn to page 10, again, Section 2. This is going to be at paragraph 29B1 under the purposes of this act. The purpose of this act, quote, to restore the authority of Congress to create and regulate money. Okay? Now, I could read more, but this bill contained multiple references to Congress having the power to create money out of nothing. No such power exists because no such power was conferred. The attempt was made to make bills of credit a legal tender, and that provision was stricken from the Constitution, and then that power was expressly prohibited to the states. Hey, if it was such a wonderful thing, I've read in various books how they had unrivaled prosperity in Massachusetts because of the bills of credit that were issued in 1692 such unrivaled prosperity that the constitutional delegates prohibited the states from doing it again, and they even withheld that power from themselves at the federal level. Go figure. There's a reason why that was done. And it's because the people who tout those bills of credit don't look at the history of them. Those things lasted for about 50 years, and they were done away with. We'll get into that probably in another broadcast. We've done it before. But let's get back to the Truth in Money book. My gosh, we don't have much time left in the broadcast, and we're only getting up to number 15 of their uh, principles. Myths is what they are, all 18 of them. But this is myth number 15, which they call a foundation stone of monetary science. Quote, A sovereign government, There's that word again, sovereign government, exercising its monetary authority. There's that word again. That word keeps coming up over and over. A sovereign government exercising its monetary authority creates money and lends it, whatever it is, into circulation by extending monetary credit. There we go. To the private sector at an affordable interest rate. Still going to have interest. It's the federal government that's not going to have to have the interest burden. You will. That's pretty considerate of them. We the people as servants to the lender. Remember Proverbs 22.7? Solomon said the rich ruleth over the poor. Borrowers servant to the lender. We the people as servants to the lender can borrow dollars of nothing at interest from our new master lender on the Potomac. Where does the Constitution delegate to Washington bureaucrats the power to open a central bank monopoly? To create imaginary money, which the public is then compelled by law to use, and then invert the master-servant relationship by insinuating Uncle Sam as our benevolent lender of absolutely nothing at interest, with our failure to perform in accordance with that contract, resulting in penalties like foreclosure. Show me in the Constitution where it says they can do that. Here's our last break. You're listening to Data Online. Okay, welcome back to the final segment of this installment of Datamine Economic Myths and the Science of Deceit, Part 8. You know, uh, the authors of Mr. Thorne and Warner claim to be defenders of the Constitution, free enterprise, and a free society, when in fact they and the populace like them undermine all three, including every economic principle of Scripture. Just like the Federal Reserve, they violate the law of just weights and measures, the law regarding usury, which was interest in the Bible, not excessive interest, any interest, and the prohibition against theft. Monetary science does not fit the biblical or constitutional model of a lawful monetary system based on just weights and measures, a principle totally ignored by populist Marxists, and others devoted to the world of instant gratification, fueled by intangible credit nor is this a subject of much interest to modern theology, which is focused on love, joy, tithing, and personal relationships in an immoral swamp of warm, fuzzy feelings. Well, (laughs) this bill... Uh, that was proposed by Dennis Kucinich is not just that Congress is going to create money out of nothing. It's going to perpetuate and expand every socialist communist program you can imagine. For example, page 44, section 504, speaks of monetary grants to states. Each year, the monetary authority, it says, shall instruct the secretary to disperse grants over a 12-month period to the states equal to 25% of the money created under this title in the prior year. Where does the Constitution authorize this master-servant relationship of the federal government over the states? It doesn't. With regards to education, Section 505, it says that the Secretary, in cooperation with the Secretary of Education, shall provide recommendations to the Congress for a program to help fund our educational system. This federal aid education, folks, that will put the United States on par with other highly developed nations and to sufficiently provide for universal pre-kindergarten, universal college at every two- and four-year public institution of higher learning so that every child has an opportunity to reach their full educational potential. It talks about Social Security trust funds. Heck, we ought to just base out Social Security altogether. But no, no, no. Initial monetary dividend to citizens. That they're going to give payments of a citizen's dividend, this is at Section 507, as a tax-free grant to all United States citizens residing in the United States. This would be at the commencement of the act. That's to help boost our economy, you understand. Universal health care funding, Section 508, they're going to provide for that as well. It says here that the Congress shall be aware that funding through this act is available for a universal health care plan as may be enacted by Congress. Of course it is. There's no money. It's just credit. What do you want to fund? We can resolve the mortgage crisis, they say, in Section 509. Funding through this act is available for resolving aspects of the mortgage crisis. Oh, it just goes on and on. I mean, these folks are not just communists in terms of fifth plank, communism. These people believe in a very powerful centralized federal government and this is promoted by american free press which i don't believe is american and i don't believe it's a free press okay there's my invective with regards to that publication well here's our music this is the end of this installment for datum line i'm bruce C. E. mccarthy and i hope this has been of interest to you thank you for listening and have a good day
1: Will the end come on this Friday or will the inevitable collapse hold off for a while? The next round of the worst financial crisis in a hundred years is coming, people, and the government is out to make you and I pay for it. Will your savings survive a global banking wipeout? What happens when the U.S. sees hyperinflation? What if taxes soar not only for the rich? Can you survive the stock market tanks? Well, between a stock market wipeout, waves of bank failures, soaring government spending that will lead to hyperinflation and the destruction of the dollar's value, isn't it time that you prepare for the uncertainty which lies ahead? Protect your money now or forever kiss it goodbye. My friends, I offer you over six decades experience of hard asset ownership and knowledge and are prepared to handle the smallest detail in the balanced protection of your portfolio. Once again, our phone number is 602-799-8214. It's almost Friday.
2: Are you one of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs? For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. You can try hemp paste by going to rbnhemppaste.com. That's rbnhemppaste.com.
3: I'm so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pastures' meats that you and your family. Will love. Now, we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high-quality pasture-raised meats. And even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now, I'm not talking about the bottom of the barrel of healthy meats that have claims like natural or free-range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is and our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you'll definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures and you will really love The delicious, nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your delight.
0: Visit RepublicBroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork raised the way nature intended.
4: or call us at 818-965-9113 Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-965-9113. drinksupertea.com
5: My name is John. I'm the founder of Blackout Coffee. And I started uh, Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee. And after traveling so much to Europe, South America, and trying so many different coffees that were so good, and uh, every time I came back, You have to try ours. It's fresh roasted. It's one of the best beans that we can get. And you will definitely see the difference.
1: Visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's REPUB10.
6: Corporate media dominates the American opinion. Finding independent voices that counter this avalanche is becoming increasingly difficult. Thank uh-huh.
1: Hey there, are you going
7: to wait till the cows come home to get your new Ease-Off drop-and-lift?
6: What in the world is an Ease-Off drop-and-lift?
7: Our Ease-Off is a new tool to increase production for your meat processing company that will get that whole hog or half a beef on or off your rail with our remote control.
2: That sounds great, but can I afford it? Sure,
7: and the Ease-Off installs fast. The effortless operation will reduce fatigue, speed up your line, and increase profits.
2: Okay,
6: I'm convinced. Where can I get my ease off?
7: Go to easeoff.com. That's e-a-z-e-o-f-f.com. And hurry because we're offering free shipping for a limited time. easeoff.com. We make pigs fly. Cows too.
6: easeoff, LLC, 417-932-6419.
2: Extend
7: your life with over. Hello, hello, hello from beautiful Colorado. My name is Samuel Jung K and I am currently the lead Shilajee hunter and master herbalist for Colorado Shilajee Company. In this video series, I will be discussing what we believe is the greatest of all adaptogenic superfoods and the single greatest natural healing remedy gifted to us by Mother Earth. I think you too will become as excited by this incredible substance called Shilajit as we were and are after our discovery of this amazing gift right here in beautiful, colorful Colorado. You may already know Shilajit by other names. Shilajit, Momio, Momi, Mami, Mineral Pitch, asphaltum, and others. Shiroji literally translates to destroyer of weakness and conqueror of mountains. Shiroji has been used for thousands of years and is considered as the highest valued cure-all of any earthly substance. Look for the gold mountain and medical symbol logo in banners on republicbroadcasting.org to watch the full video and see more information. Use code GORBN when ordering. That's G-O-R-B-N.
3: The secret to aging like fine wine is in the vines. Syrah grape seeds and skins contain high levels of flavonoids and resveratrol. Fermentation breaks these organic compounds down into smaller
0: molecules,
3: penetrating these therapeutic ingredients deeper into the skin, delivering faster and more effective results. Our handmade fermented skin care products are formulated with all natural ingredients and do not contain any phthalates or parabens. Similar products can cost as much as $180. At Natural Earth Medicine, we source our ingredients from local Arizona vineyards and cold process our oils to ensure that our customers receive the highest quality product in its purest form. Learn more at our website and try our fermented skincare products today. Visit NaturalEarthMedicine.com. That's NaturalEarthMedicine.com.